Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, we look into the science of laughter. Why is it that we all laugh differently and adapt our laughs to different social situations? We find out. Kenny Brain of HGTV's Making It Home with Courtney and Kenny joins us to chat about the third season of The Renovation Show and his second and find out why he feels we should be doing more in schools to remove any stigma that still exists around students picking up a trade. Hockey Canada cleans house with the resignation of the CEO and the entire board of directors. Will it be enough to turn the organization around? A group of tech experts takes on the Arrive Can app and manages not only to replicate it over the long weekend, but also back up claims that the $54 million the federal government spent on the app was astronomical for a pretty basic tool. But first, as Russia steps up the bombing of civilian areas across Ukraine to levels not seen since the beginning of the war back in February, why one former Canadian ambassador to Russia says the only way he thinks this conflict will end is either with the destruction of Ukraine or the fall of Vladimir Putin. It has been a deadly and destructive 72 hours in Ukraine as Russia continues to attack its neighbor with missiles and munition-carrying drones, including today. On Monday, dozens of strikes killed 19 people, wounded more than 100 and knocked out power supply across the country. It was Moscow's biggest aerial offensive since the start of the invasion back on February the 24th. They launched their attacks following explosions that damaged a bridge linking Russia to the Crimean Peninsula. Now, that's the official excuse, but they've been bombarding civilian targets since the beginning of the war. So it's just an escalation of something that's already going on. Ukrainian media reported Russian missile strikes hit 70 targets, including 29 critical infrastructure facilities, four high-rises, 35 residential buildings, and a school. The UN Human Rights Office says the particularly shocking attacks could amount to war crimes. Prime Minister Trudeau says he spoke with the Ukrainian president about the recent strikes and Canada's military support, he says, will continue. Here is the prime minister. The Russians' missile strikes on civilians, on innocent people commuting to work, kids playing in parks, are targeted at civilians and civilian infrastructure. There's no military targets in there. It's just a recognition that Ukrainians have fought so bravely and the world has stood so solidly by their sides and behind them that Russia's decided to take this to the next level. The G7 uh, also condemned the attacks as a whole and said they would, quote, stand firmly with Ukraine for as long as it takes. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, also appealed to G7 leaders today, including Canada, uh, via teleconference for more air defense capabilities or air protection, at least, and to continue to use sanctions to cut off Russia's energy export profits. Canada today announced that we are sending another 40 military engineers to Poland to train Ukrainian forces there in their fight against Russia. Well, joining me now with more on this is Ralph Lassishan. He's a longtime diplomat and Canada's former ambassador in Moscow. Thanks so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. Good evening. So tell me about the escalation. What did you make of uh, of what happened over the, the long weekend here? It was certainly uh, something that we had seen before, but not at a scale of which we'd seen before. That's true. But for the last couple of weeks, it's been very clear that Putin is losing the the military war, the ground war, particularly in the east of Ukraine. And we have been watching to see what he does in in response. 
It's clear that there is pressure on him from the extreme right and and some of his allies in the government who want him to do more. And it was not clear at first whether he was at a point where he would have to start to find ways to retreat or whether he would up the ante. And it's very clear that he has chosen to up the ante. The attacks he he is making do not have any particular military value, but I think he is trying to intimidate the Ukrainians into seeking a ceasefire. But I don't think that's likely because a ceasefire is in the end a loss for the Ukrainians. Yeah, Vladimir uh, Vladimir Zelensky today said said that was a non-starter right now. Um, This worked in Grozny back in the day, this sort of indiscriminate bombing to try and intimidate a opponent into at least giving up or talking. Do you think it'll work again uh, decades later? It seems like it wouldn't. Well, I think there is nobody really encouraging the Ukrainians to give up. And indeed, we are looking for ways to help them fight. And I think the everybody recognizes that If the Ukrainians give up, if there is any way the Russians can walk away and claim victory, this has very serious implications for international relations generally. Yeah, I mean, you were there uh, at a time as as relations were somewhat normalized, somewhat even after the invasion of Georgia. Uh, What have you made so far of of the last eight months, of of the eight and a half months now, nearly nine, of the wars? Did it come as a surprise just how poorly Russia executed this this invasion? Well, there, there has always been, even through the communist era, a sense that the Russian military was not as strong as we believed it was. And indeed, the Russian military does not have a great record of successes. So that uh, it it is clear that Putin miscalculated. He thought he could win the war quickly. Uh, He was advised, I think, by people who wanted the war badly and who told him now is the moment to go. Uh, And clearly it wasn't. He misunderstood. He underestimated the Ukrainians, and I think he underestimated the support from the West. The Ukrainians have again asked for better air defense, uh, given the amount of missiles that are raining down on civilian targets in their country. We've been resistant for months now to give them that, feeling like it would be too much of an escalation. We've seen some noise in the past 48 hours that they may be shifting. Uh, That would seem like a very big step in this fight if all of a sudden... Uh, Ukraine's Western allies started to, prevent, to provide more robust um, ground, ground defenses for, for air attacks? Well, I, I think that the escalation is not coming from our side. It is coming from the Russian side. And although uh, Putin has shown himself willing to show outrage about different things, including the, the bombing of the uh, bridge, The fact is that they started the war and they have to live with the consequences. What do you expect next, then, if this is what escalation looks like? um, 
one w- wouldn't be forgiven for thinking that in fact he's he's dealing with a weak hand right now if this is as much as they can intimidate so that always begs the question what else what else Ru- what might russia do and and i guess we're reaching a situation that you must have contemplated when you were there which is what happens when uh, when a provoked russia is backed into a corner what what does the west do well i think the the question there is what does russia do when it's backed into a corner And we are not very good at guessing or anticipating what Russia will do. I think most people didn't expect Russia would attack Ukraine. Uh, They did. Uh, And I think we don't know what what will happen. I think there's too many possibilities. Uh, Whether or not the hard line will continue to tolerate defeat whether they have any choice, how much pressure will come from the population as uh, as the defeats continue and they become more and more clear that Russia has walked into a war that it cannot win. So it, it's very hard to anticipate. I certainly wouldn't right. invest any money in a guess. Is there a way, do you think, the sanctions seem to have been doing a, a pretty good job. We knew they weren't going to have an immediate uh, devastating impact, but they seem to be doing what had been hoped. Is there any response left now that we can use when it comes to sanctions to further put pressure on Russia in this situation to at least de-escalate these attacks? Well, one thing I think we need to do is to put pressure on countries who are working around the sanctions and helping Russia work around the sanctions. And I think we could probably do more in our dealings with them. Uh, There are other things that people have talked about, whether or not to allow Russians to visit Europe, to come in and out of Europe, whether or not to sanction athletes uh, more rigorously. Uh, All of these have you know, pluses and negatives. Uh, I think the important thing is to keep the Ukrainians fighting. I mean, you spent many, many, many years uh, in diplomatic circles. Where do you think the inability to um, convince some other countries, let's say China or perhaps uh, Saudi Arabia or India, for that matter, that this that Russia uh, needs isolating? Where do you think that may have fallen down or or has it or is it just not you know are we are we witnessing something diplomatically here that that we that we didn't anticipate or didn't fully understand well i don't think anybody expected the war and so you don't start talking about well what would you do if there was a war before the war happens i think the The problem has not been India and China. The problem has been uh, Iran. Uh, Apparently, there are rumors that that Russians are getting weapons from North Korea, which uh, suggests they are indeed very desperate. And one of the challenges of us getting weapons to uh, the Ukrainians is that High technology is not something that they, in weapons, is not something that they have worked a lot with. And so one of the things that countries are doing is going around 
trying to persuade countries that use Russian weapons to, as the Ukrainians do, to make some of these available to Ukraine. And uh, countries such as Cyprus, for example, which uh, was under sanctions for weapons for a long time and therefore bought a lot from from Russia, so we have to be out there persuading them uh, to start helping and sending weapons to to uh, to Ukraine. But it uh, it's an ongoing game. Uh, it uh, we have to keep pressure up. We have to. This has to be part of every discussion that the NATO countries have with countries like Cyprus. On the one hand, give weapons to Ukraine on conversations with other countries uh, trying to persuade them not to give weapons. Uh, India has a big stock of weapons. There's no sign that they are giving any weapons, and we need to talk to them about that and make sure that doesn't change. Do you see a diplomatic solution here uh, anytime soon? Uh, by soon, I mean even within the next 12 months. Do you see any chance of, of talks? It feels like we're not even close to anything that looks like a diplomatic solution. My, my own sense is this war ends in one of two ways. Either Ukraine disappears as an independent country or the Putin regime is defeated and removed from power. I don't – any negotiation – would inevitably allow Russia to claim that they had made an attack, they had captured a few areas, and therefore it was worth it. Uh, it would also leave them in a position to, to come back in a few years. When I first got to Moscow as ambassador, I was talking with a parliamentarian from, from Russia who said, you know, we're very unhappy particularly our security services, about the independence of Ukraine. And at that point, I said, it's you know, 16 years now, that's not yeah, that's going to one. change. And they, they are not getting it back. And he said to me that sooner or later, they will try. And that is what they have now done. They waited eight years after Crimea, they're quite capable of waiting four or five years and trying again uh, after, uh, after any kind of diplomatic solution. So a diplomatic solution, I think, has to await the removal of Putin. Ralph Lassishan, thank you so much for your insight tonight. I appreciate it. You're welcome. I've been looking forward to this one, as one does with segments. You see when you think, oh, that's going to be a good one. Uh, they are. But this one I've been looking forward to. Laughter, of course. Everyone loves to laugh. I hope you had some good laughs over the long weekend that you got together with people people you love, people you like to get along with, and had a few chuckles here and there. So this was all uh, started when I, I think lots of people have seen this video. Uh, it's a video... That was taken. It's a show that was shot a while back. I think it's 2016, 2017. It goes back a while now. But a French TV show in France brought together a group of guests, all with unique laughs, and asked them some very basic questions about how it had affected their lives. Um, now, the audience laughs, but it's really 
the guests who do most of the laughing. Uh, and, it, and that's not why it was so memorable. What really stood out was just how much they laughed not at each other, but with each other. Have a listen. <laughs> Vous êtes célibataire, c'est pas à cause de votre rire. J'espère pas. Non. Now you have to p- picture that that is a bit like like it, almost like a like a you know a Oprah setup. It's about nine of them sitting around, just all sitting in their chairs. And the questions, I mean, the question that was asked there was, "Do you feel like your laugh has has prevented you from me? Is why you're still single?" And he says, "I hope not." So there wasn't much that was particularly funny about that, but they just they they had each other going, and they were laughing with each other to such an extent that, of course, it it turns into sort of this classic moment on television. Um, and yeah, it just got us thinking about people have different laughs and you all have that one friend who has a, has a more, uh, different laugh than others that you'll remember always. Or, and sometimes even you do things. If you find something really funny, sometimes you snort, you make funny sounds. Apparently we try to minimize that even in social situations, we, we rarely let ourselves laugh the way we would laugh if we really let ourselves laugh, if that makes any sense. Um, so it got us thinking about laughter. Why do we laugh differently? How do we adapt it to different social situations and so forth? So joining me now is Greg Bryant. He's a professor and chair in the Department of Communication at the University of California at Los Angeles, or UCLA, and he is an expert on the nature of laughter. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. So you too have seen this clip spreading around again. It is quite a uh, it is quite the quite the scene. It's 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 a pretty pretty incredibly i can't help everyone can't help but laughing while watching it why is that yeah well i mean it's really a mystery at some level of why laughter is so contagious um in general but i think this clip in particular is interesting for people because of the unusual nature of the laugh so um one laugh in particular i think is extremely unusual and it's like a tone yeah Um, it's like a honking tone sound i mean and actually kind of hard to figure out which one of them is producing it and i think the person that's producing it is trying to hide it a little bit but um then you have some other unusual laughs there's ones that's like a seagull and then another one has a low-pitched laugh and when they all happen together it just has this wonderful quality that is just it 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 causes it's a trigger for us to laugh and it's not totally clear why that particular vocalization is contagious in the way it is though so a lot of vocalizations are contagious in different contexts so yeah. babies cry when they hear other babies cry we laugh when we hear laughter um and emotions are contagious in general that was like a symphony of laughter right which is uh which yeah you can't you can't beat that so why is it that we laugh differently why is it that each of us has just much as much of us have unique voices that we also have unique laughs yeah i'm Again, there's not a lot of research um, really looking at um, how different characteristics of a person um, are associated with their laughter style. But I think that we can say pretty safely that 
it's due to a bunch of different variables, including the sound of your voice is obviously going to be um, something. The the way that you express yourself emotionally has to do with the personality. You can be an extrovert or an introvert. Um, different personality characteristics are going to contribute to the way you you communicate with your voices and your face and your body and everything. Um, so I think a lot of it's just about unique personalities um, are going to um, cause you know, unique characteristics in a, in a behavior like laughter, which is um, also a very important interpersonal signal where your unique aspect is important part of the signal. Yeah, I think at one point in some studies that did a study that you conducted that you people could actually tell other people's laughs easier than they could tell other people's voice. In some way, they could distinguish each other by the way someone was laughing uh, more quickly than than faster than their voices. Like that, that's how distinctive it is. Um, I think you're referring to the work of Nadine Levon and Carol, um, Carolyn McGettigan right. in the UK. And, um, I, you know, I think the result is actually the other way around. Where was it okay? People can't tell individual identity from spontaneous laughs. Right. But they can tell it better from volitional laughs, which are more associated with your spoken voice. Um, but as soon as you start expressing, it's the, the the spontaneous laugh is produced by a different system in our brains that is linked to uh, um, emotional vocalizations that non-human animals produce. And th that kind of production results in a signal that is hard to identify the individual. We do adapt our laugh, though, depending on the situation. And, and I guess we're, we're reticent sometimes to let our, our true laugh come out. There are definitely going to be situations where we want to actually express ourselves in a more genuine way. And then, like you said, there's a lot of different kinds of laughs. So um, if we're producing volitional laughs in conversation, a lot of those times they're, they're not emotionally stimulated. They're more like um, like when you nod during a conversation or you say, uh-huh, uh-huh, like you're, you're giving feedback that you understand what somebody's saying. Um, and so laughter can function that way. And then and it's produced by the speech system, which is, you know, controlling how we produce language. And so it has different kinds of acoustic characteristics. But when we do, in fact, um, really laugh, um, I guess as we get older, we also try to, I mean, I think we saw a bit of that uh, on that TV show as well, that people do try to muffle their true laughs, regardless of how unique they are, because it is a bit of a let loose environment, right? Yeah, you make yourself vulnerable because you're revealing something about your emotions that, um, you know, may not always be the smartest thing to do in an in ordinary communicative situations. And then these people. And so what I was going to say before is that, um, you know, these people have very unique um, laughs and those stick out. So you remember that. Right. So you, everybody's got the friend that has the crazy laugh and you you know, you can hear it at a distance. You're like, I know they're at this I party. Can... I can hear I can it now. Hear I can hear it now. Yeah, right. Exactly. But, but yeah. most of us don't have a laugh like that. And so it's not a unique thing that distinguishes us particularly. But it does give information about your emotional state. And um, and that makes you vulnerable at some level. We could also, and, and you've looked into this as well, we really can tell when a laugh is genuine. Right. People are pretty good at it. I mean, you know, there's um, what we in evolutionary biology is called an arms race. So there is the the ability to um, send a reliable signal and then there's ability to, to deceive. And then there's, on the other hand, there's detection of a reliable signal and detection to deceive. And so 
um, people can produce what sounds like a real laugh, even though it's not. But then uh, judges are also pretty good at detecting it, but not perfect. Right. And so there are plenty of cases where people can be fooled. Yeah. what Laughter is the best medicine I've always heard. Is Is that true? Is that true? Well, there is there is a whole research area looking at the health benefits of laughter. And then there are movements like laughter yoga, where people um, um, have methods for eliciting um, laughter in people that then can have positive effects on their health. And there is some there's there's some evidence that it can have benefits like reducing blood pressure and um, boosting your immune system and and stuff like that. But I I think that's a side effect of just the positive interaction um, and emotion that is associated with it. Um, but yeah, there, I think it can be, it's beneficial. It's good for you. It's also probably decent exercise. If you're laughing vigorously, it's, it actually makes you tired. It does. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever been to a really funny movie or a really funny comedy show or had just had a really good laugh, yeah, you're, you're actually physically tired. You know, you, you feel sure. it. It's, yeah. It's uh, what about it? inappropriate laughter that's always been one that comes up too i i guess it's a sign of nervousness but it is one of those things that uh laughing at inappropriate times can often be a bit of a social stigma absolutely i mean for one i think it could be evidence that you have some kind of social deficit i mean that it's a cognitive deficit where um you might produce inappropriate behaviors including laughter um it, it it's a particularly bad one for in some circumstances because it can it can signal indifference to a situation where you should be concerned, you know, or, um, you, you know, you're, it's, you're not respecting the situation or you're not respecting an individual. And so, um, you know, if you're laughing in court or you're laughing at a funeral or something, but it also could be an adaptive response to a, a difficult situation. So people do make jokes in inappropriate circumstances. Um, you know, people that deal with traumatic situations on a regular basis have inside jokes with one another that they use as a coping mechanism. And that shouldn't be seen as as something negative about the people. I think it's just an adaptive response. So there are different kinds of inappropriateness. And, um, you know, it depends on the situation. Yeah, there's always that's actually a newsroom phenomenon that's had to be looked at a lot of late is that sort of uh, jokes being told in newsrooms about tragic situations because it was a coping mechanism, clearly yeah. inappropriate, but had to be reviewed over time because it was seen by others as being who weren't part of it as being inappropriate. Definitely. I mean, if it's outside of the context, people don't understand why somebody might produce that kind of behavior. And then it seems cold. So, so as a as a as a parting uh, shot, not a parting shot, but as a parting view of that video, uh, I guess it's always good to be reminded that laughter is infectious, and that uh, some people have different laughs, but uh, we should laugh with them, uh, not at them. Absolutely, no doubt about it. We should all be laughing more in general. <laughs> Greg Bryant, thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Let's go, team. Let's do it. Scalpel, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> this house needs so much work. This is all completely rotted out. How does this affect us, and how do we move forward? Every room is like, pow, pow, beautiful. It is gorgeous. <laughs> this is how you make a place a home. Making it home with Courtney and Kenny. New season, Tuesday, October 11th on HGTV. 
Well, that's today, Tuesday, October 11th, and it is indeed the debut of season three of Making It Home with Courtney and Kenny on HGTV. Newfoundland's Kenny Brain joined as the show's contractor and partner to Courtney Wilson for season two last year, replacing Dave Wilson. Uh, you remember Kenny from season two of Big Brother Canada as well. Well, it turns out he's also trained in the trades and now finding a home in a different kind of show, helping homeowners transform their living spaces into something special. And he does make a really good argument here. He felt growing up that there wasn't enough in, uh, emphasis on the qualities, the good things there is about studying the trades. It felt like it was always for those who couldn't go to university. And he did both and felt like if he had known younger that studying a trade would be so gratifying, so great that he would have done it sooner. And he feels like people should be getting that message. We should be spreading that message a lot faster to people out there today. I feel like we are a bit these days that we are really putting an emphasis on the trades, but he feels like that's something we really should be doing more of. And he hopes that in his role, he helps do that a little bit. Uh, So how does a renovation show like Making It Home work behind the scenes? What can stand in the way of success? How do you overcome it? All while trying to stay on time and on budget and all while the cameras are rolling. Joining me now is Kenny Brain, co-host of Making It Home, with Courtney and Kenny on HDTV. Thanks for your time tonight. I really appreciate you having me here. It's it's always interesting to see a second season when hosts work together because you get the impression that you find you kind of find a groove. And I'm not sure if that's what it was like this year, but just watching that uh, first episode, which is excellent, by the way. Um, how have how have you found it this year? What was it like to go back in with last year behind you and so forth? Well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there in that we did kind of, we found our groove. The first season was very much meeting each other. I'm not sure if you're, you know this, but like when I show up um, for the first episode and I walk up to set to the, the homeowner's home, um, that's the first time I met Courtney. Really? In person. Yeah. We did virtual things, right? We that's did right, a lot of, of video and, and we, you know, just did some role playing and all that stuff throughout the, the casting process. But I actually didn't actually meet her face to face until we were about to shoot. So we kind of, you, the viewer, sees our relationship develop throughout the season. And thank, thankfully, we hit the jackpot and, the, you know, won the lottery and that we get along so well. So this season, was just you know it's like we collectively took a breath and we really know each other we know our buttons we know how to push them we're having so much fun so this season i'm really proud of yeah because it must help too that she had she had experience with it so she can kind of because it's hard to do those i mean when you watch the finished product it looks easy but it can't be right it can't be so (laughs) i mean thank you because obviously we're doing something right if it makes it look easy because you're absolutely right it's the farthest thing from easy i mean we have super tight timelines and the, the issues that you know arise and the very specific projects that we're doing, you know, whether it's accessibility, whether, you know, it's uh, like a complete home overhaul or whatever it is, um, it, it's not easy to do them in the tight, the tight timelines that we're doing. Yeah. I, one of the things I found interesting is, is how you, how you got the, how you got the position, how you managed to, to, uh, to audition basically. And one of it was that you, that you challenge. And I think to make good <laughs> TV, you have to, right. You have to be able to, there has to be a little bit of tension there too. Absolutely. I mean, nobody just wants to hear two people walk into a room, agree with everything that everybody is saying, and then move on. You know what I mean? Like, I never want to be the smartest person in a room. I want to learn from somebody. Courtney is 
you know, on top of being an incredibly close friend now and family, I consider, you know, I'm going to be in her wedding. She actually asked me to be, be oh, her flower boy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm going to be a flower boy for the first time. That's new. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've learned so much from her. So being able to kind of go into this with her background and then feed off of each other has been such a blessing. One of the things I noticed just uh, watching some of last year's episodes, watching the first episode this year, is that you, you might not notice it if, if you weren't paying, look, looking for it, but you do ask a lot of questions. Um, and you get the impression that, that, that the finished product is a reflection of how much homework you've done on the people you're working with right off the bat. I'm, that's, I mean, that's like anything in life, right? I, I think being inquisitive about something that you love or that you're passionate about, or even just people in general, will always leave you off in a better place. So get to know the people that you're working with, get to know the people that you're surrounding yourself with, and it will always equate to a, a better project, a better end game. Is that challenging when you're working with couples? I've noticed that that a number of times, both members of a couple have said, this looks like me, and that can't be easy to do. Yeah. Well, everybody's so different, right? Even even in a couple, like you said, it's everybody has their own personality and their own wants. And that's kind of the challenge. And that's, you know, a little bit more on, on Courtney's side of things, because I'm just more of a, what do you want me to do? And I will do it. <laughs> but, um, you know, when you walk into a home and you have uh, a couple that says, I, you know, I love color. And the other one says, I hate color. It's not easy, you know? <laughs> When you look at um, at the finished product, and and we know that it's you know it's edited for a certain narrative arc, it has to be to make it. Uh, what happens behind the scenes in all that time? There must be all kinds of challenges for you, especially you having to do the work. And then when you run into problems or things that don't quite go according to plan, you have to you have to act pretty quick to fix them. And absolutely. And like I said, the timelines are really tight and the, all the issues with like supply chains and getting materials and getting people to help me do these projects. Um, you know, when there's changes or there's, you know, issues that arise, um, it has become really, really difficult. Um, and then that's, uh, you know, like you said, there's only 60 minutes that we can put in months of work into. So there is a lot that hits the cutting room floor. Uh, a lot of the work that I'm doing, a lot of the breakdowns that I'm having, um, maybe they'll do like an after dark or something like that. of just me <laughs> having mental breakdowns. I don't know. <laughs> Probably a good idea. Those are always uh, How tough has yeah. it been? Because we read a lot about this year, clearly inflation, the prices of stuff going up, uh, supply chain issues. Uh, when you're working on tight timelines, when you have ideas that you want to see happen, when you want to make the people you're working with happy with what the finished product looks like on time, uh, how tough has it been with all the different issues that we're facing these days? Extremely, to be honest, extremely tough. You know, a lot of times we do have a vision and we say, you know, this needs to happen. This is what we want to happen. And then reality sets in and we look at the dollars and cents and the budget that we have to work with in the timeline. And we say, you know what, we're going to have to pivot and we're going to have to figure out uh, an alternative, something that is just as good, but in the same vein, but maybe quicker or a little cheaper because it's, it's been tough. I mean, like shower glass has been a really, right. really tough one. It is like, months out and we don't have months so a lot of times we have to, to to go back and say hey you know what this would have been great what's in stock and what can we get right now that's still quality that still looks great and that we can get it yeah i, I don't want to give away anything of episode one but there is a shower glass aspect to uh, to that one as well uh, <laughs> yep i mean I, I guess i mean these are this is advice that applies to anyone setting off even if they want to do something by themselves is Go out there and see what's out there first, right? 
Absolutely. Like I'm, I'm in Calgary right now and I've been here for uh, probably what about three weeks and I'm in the middle of two projects already. I said I was going to take a little bit of time off that clearly did not happen <laughs> uh, because it's just so much work to be done out there. And I have a hard time saying no, but this is the thing we I'm going into these homes and they say, we want to start immediately. And then they say, Oh, I have this beautiful tile. I want to import from the UK. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, that, uh, that, that, that word import, that doesn't, we don't say that here right now, because if you want to start right now, these are the options that you have from the stores that we have in stock on floor or else we have a huge lead time before we can start. You've had a really interesting path to get here because I, I know that growing up in Newfoundland and I've spent quite a bit of time there. I have family in St. John's. Um, the way. Yeah, I do. That, that, I mean, you know, being handy is one of those things that you need <laughs> to be. I mean, you can't be, not be handy. But you came around, you sort of came to it in a, in a bit more of a roundabout way. What led you back to, uh, to that kind of work, to construction work? Uh, well, you're right. It was kind of a roundabout way in that, you know, we grew up, my dad was handy. We helped him do things. We were forced to help him do things. <laughs> Not that I really loved doing it or wanted to do it. It was more of a chore. Um, but unbeknownst to me, that's kind of set the the, the backstage that like laid the, the crumbs for me to get to where I am today and to, to figure out that it was actually what I'm passionate about. You know, I was always creative. I loved working with my hands and sketching and, you know, all that, you know, design, all of those things. Um, but I, I, I don't think trades were necessarily pushed in school. They weren't framed up as something that you did. It was actually, to be quite honest and frank, it was something that you did if you couldn't do university. That's how I was presented and with the trades. So I did university. I went to university. I got a degree. I went and worked in a business. I was doing business development and marketing for some startups in Montreal and realized that it really truly wasn't for me. So behind my dad's back, I said, you know what, I'm going to go to trade school and I'm going to be a carpenter. And I went to trade school and it is the best decision I have ever made. It gives me all of the outlets, the creative outlets, you know, gratifying work that I do with my hands that I have a tangible product at the end that I can be proud of. So it's the best decision I've ever made. It's it's odd that it's not pushed, and and it's and it's it's only seems to be pushed sort of in one way too. And you're right; it's it's often said as something you fall back on. Uh, but I don't know anyone who has a trade now is not happy happy about it these days. I mean, the construction industry is booming. It's incredible. It's good money. You know, it's working with your hands. It's being proud of what you do. And you're right; I don't know one tradesperson who isn't doing well and happy with what they're doing. Um, and a lot of people actually, you know, come out of university with a bunch of student loans. I unfortunately did as well. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of people come out of trades with no student loans and they already make great money. So it is such a great route to take. I just think it needs to be framed up better in, you know, the younger grades. Yeah, no pun intended. Uh, as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just talk about, I mean, the, the variety of representation. I know that on Big Brother, um, you know, you come out, you came out on Big Brother. I remember that. Um, and mm -hmm. just, just for for to 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 provide that sort of role model that props you probably didn't have. I certainly didn't have growing up watching building shows, whether it was this old house or anything like that. It was never talked about. Um, it must be, it must be an important part of of what you feel like you're you're doing as well. Uh, it is, and it isn't. To be quite mm -hmm. honest, um, you know, I never set out to be a role model. You know what I mean? I never set out to say, I want to, uh, you know, stand up on a podium and scream from the mountaintops kind of thing. Um, all I ever really wanted to do was do something that I loved and be my, the happiest I can be and the most genuine person that I can be. Now in saying that, do I think representation absolutely matters and is absolutely imperative to have? Yes. 
I did not see myself on TV growing up, like you said, you know, especially in this industry. So if I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm happy and I'm supported and somebody sees that and it resonates with them, then I am so honored. But that, you know, it wasn't something that I set out to do. Yeah, I, I guess the proof is in the success, right? I mean, that's that's really what it boils down to. If you do it well and people enjoy the show and you enjoy doing it, then therein lies the success. Newfoundland's had a tough fall. Um, I, I know oh, that yeah. must have you haven't been home for a bit. I know, or you might have been home since we since I last was reading about it. But uh, that must have that must have hit you. Uh, just the, the Fiona the Fiona stuff. Absolutely. I mean, the devastation that occurred in Newfoundland was just off the charts. Um, and, and, and there's places in the Maritimes that still don't have power. I think PEI is still without power. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Parts of PEI. So it really did hit her home. Thankfully, most of my family was on the East Coast and they weren't majorly affected. But I mean, the, the, the people and the connections that you have on the island, obviously, it's, it's a small place. So I know many people who were and it has just been heartbreaking. So this show, what, what can viewers expect this year that may have been a little bit different from last year? And what are you most proud of uh, that emerged from season three? Um, I mean, I, the designs and the actual projects themselves are just bolder and they're bigger. And the homeowners that own the homes have such a, like a diverse beautiful, intricate background. So their personalities really shine through. But I think the thing I'm most proud of is honestly my relationship with Courtney. It really has bloomed this season and evolved from the first, well, the first one I was involved with. Um, And it's just, I think that really translates. I think it translates to a better show. I think it uh, it translates to better projects. Um, You know, we connect better, therefore we, we produce better. So I'm really, really proud of that. Yeah, and it's not always a given in these circumstances, right? I mean, people think there's chemistry, but sometimes there isn't. You can't really fake the chemistry. Uh, you can try, but it doesn't work. Yeah, I do. I, and you know what? Like, I think people have tried, but you know, the viewer is smart. The viewer will know whether it's real or not. So I do think that you know we won the lottery in that we were placed together. And like you said, it just so happened that I pushed back, and that's what uh, you know intrigued Courtney. So. Um, we just work really well together, and I'm just I'm so thankful that it worked out the way it did. Well, Kenny, congratulations on season three. I know viewers will, will enjoy it. It's a it's a good it's a good watch, as we used to say back in my house in Montreal. <laughs> and thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Our board, frankly, does not share the view that senior leadership should be replaced on the basis of what we consider to be substantial misinformation and an unduly cynical attacks. You know, I appreciate that others disagree with us, but our positions are based on the information that we have and an understanding that Hockey Canada has an excellent reputation. Yeah, what a difference a week can make. That was uh, Andrea Skinner, the former interim chair of Hockey Canada, testifying in front of the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage uh, last week. Um, over the sports governing body's handling of alleged sexual assaults and how money was paid out in lawsuits. Now, Skinner claimed the organization was being used as a scapegoat and toxic behavior is, of course, a society-wide problem. Well, what a difference, again, a week makes as corporations continue to abandon their sponsorship agreements from Nike to TELUS to Tim Hortons to Bauer being the latest and biggest one today. You name it, late Wednesday, um, Skinner resigned uh, over the weekend saying, upon reflection, it is clear to me from recent events that it is no longer that it no longer makes sense for me to continue to volunteer my time as interim chair of the organization. 
And then today, and it was, I have to be honest with you, I was surprised that, that this didn't happen before a long weekend, because normally it does. But then today, word from Hockey Canada that after months of pressure, the CEO, Scott Smith, and the entire board of directors at Hockey Canada are out. Uh, the Prime Minister says it's an important first step on rebuilding accountability, but there is still work to do. Well, I think seeing uh, the entire board and the CEO step down is an important step forward. Uh, but there's a, ch a culture to change. There is an awful lot of work to ensure uh, that the structures and systems that Hockey Canada has in place uh, protects employees, protects Canadians, protects our kids as they play hockey. Um, Hockey Canada says an interim management committee will be put in place to guide the organization until a new board, which is set to be elected in December, appoints a replacement for the CEO, Scott Smith. Uh, Sports Minister Pascal saint also says she plans to review how Ottawa funds national sport organizations, period. On my side, at the federal level, what I'm working on right now to improve the sports system is I'm going to review the entire funding system. So all the organizations that receive federal funding are going to have higher expectations in regards to governance, transparency, uh, prevention of abuse and maltreatment in sport. That is Pascal Saint-Onge, the sports minister today. Well, joining me now is Macintosh Ross. He's an assistant professor of kinesiology at Western University in London. Thanks so much for your time tonight. No problem. So if you were a betting person, I don't think the Tuesday after Thanksgiving weekend would have been the time. I mean, I would have thought that this all would have happened ages ago, but it didn't. So what do you think changed? I think the pressure was just too much, um, especially with the corporate sponsors leaving one after another. Um, I think that's what made the big difference. Uh, and ultimately, they decided that uh, they couldn't continue. Were you uh, surprised that it actually happened at all, given how long, well, I guess with the uh, with the uh, interim board chair resigning over the weekend, it felt like something was going on. But uh, were you surprised that they finally decided today was the day to uh, to clean house? Um, a little bit. I thought I thought it would take a little bit longer, if I'm being honest. Um, but uh, after the October 4th hearing, it just went so incredibly bad that it felt like they were sinking and that they were, they were doing everything they could to hold on. And then when the, the provincial association started to break with them and then the corporation started to leave, it, it really felt like they, there was nothing left for them to hold on to. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have an, orga an organization left to run if they didn't do something soon. Um, and, you know, it, at times it felt like they didn't really care. That they were, well, were going to hold on to the better end anyway, but um, it, it was refreshing to to see it happen today. Yeah, I, I was I wasn't um, so much surprised that um, Adria Skinner last week said what she said. One, she had no doubt been coached to some extent that that oh, was yeah. going to be the line that they were going to come come to committee with. But the fact that it was so toned completely and utterly out of you know taken so. You know, just the way it was received was so terrible. Someone, I guess it's been hard to figure out what's going on within the organization that they could be so um, tone deaf to all of this. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, Andrea Skinner, she was put into an impossible situation. Um, and she was, she was delivering probably, uh, for the most part, what Hockey Canada wanted her to deliver. And we know for a fact that they wanted her to take a very 
um, offensive approach. Uh, you know, they were talking in hockey terminology that they'd been on defense too long. Um, and that, that was just seemed like terrible advice to me. Um, you know, we're talking about potential victims of sexual assault here. This is not uh, a hockey game. Um, how you could go out there and try to paint yourself and the organization as victims, basically, by saying that you were being misconstrued, that misinformation was kind of running amok, that uh, politicians in the media were picking on you. It just is so disconnected from what most Canadians seem to have wanted from them. And it was very obvious that that's what most Canadians wanted. So there are still a lot of unanswered questions, aren't there? Uh, Just with the resignations, I mean, I think that's what a lot of people have been calling for. Uh, but there is still work to be done, I would think. Investigations continue, questions continue. A lot of things are unanswered, and they still remain unanswered tonight. Yeah, so part of the problem here is that it's still Hockey Canada that has to pick up the pieces and select some uh, interim leadership and, and things like that. So it's still people who are already there who are going to be making these decisions, Um obviously under a high level of scrutiny, um, which, which will be helpful. Um, but we, we really don't know who will come in now. Um, if it were up to me, I'd want to see a, a far more diverse uh, board of directors. Um, it should be at least 50% women in the 21st century. Um, and, and it needs to reflect the game as it is now, not how it was 20 years ago. You know, Parasport needs to be involved. Um, there needs to be representation from LGBTQ plus um, uh, populations. It can't. It can't just be uh, the same old boys club that it has been, where you know, uh, far, far, you know, the far, the vast majority of of the board is is men. Yeah, and with long history in the game too, right? I mean, uh, Scott Smith had been there for for years. Mm-hmm. Not that that's always a terrible thing. Sometimes experience matters, uh, but it's hard to see your organization transforming or not changing if you've been inside it for that long. Yeah, and he he had served in, in a bunch of different capacities. Um, so, you know, I don't think it would necessarily be a bad thing if they they brought in some people who weren't necessarily hockey people. Um, I think most people have a grasp uh, of the basics of hockey in Canada. It's it's everywhere. You can't avoid it, but people who are are specialists in human rights or people who are advocates for survivors of of sexual assault and things like that. um, People who can really bring skills that the the organization desperately needs um, beyond just hockey skills and how can we win the most gold medals. Um, I think that's really important moving forward. How much damage has been done, do you think? Uh, I think it's going to take a long time for Hockey Canada to regain the trust of Canadians because they they were not transparent from the very beginning and they haven't been transparent since 1989 when, when this all started. Um and, uh, you know, sexual assault cases started to be um, handled in ways that are just inconsistent with, you know, good practice. Um, 
I don't I don't know what they can do other than I think it's a step in the right direction to replace the board. Uh, finally, the CEO is gone. Um, but it'll take years. And uh, I think a lot of corporations are not going to go back to them in the, in the immediate future. Um, it could take five, maybe more uh, years before they come back and are willing to invest the kind of money that they used to. Yeah, I guess that therein lies the big problem for Hockey Canada. If it was ultimately the fleeing sponsors and the lack of uh, confidence from their own uh, provincial associations that really was the death knell here, not sort of the media and politicians. Uh, to regain their trust once it's gone will be the real challenge ahead. And you're right, I guess once corporations go, they review their spending on sponsorships and they don't necessarily agree to what they agreed to in the past. Yeah, and I, I'm happy to see that a lot of them are, are deciding that they'll only sponsor the women's team, the para team, uh, youth hockey. Um, so they're not, you know, removing themselves entirely from hockey in Canada. They're just they're not going to be involved with the the elite men's side of things that has had so much trouble. Does there need to be accountability? from players um i don't know what that might look like but does there need mm. to be an account a full investigation and accountability from players who have been um involved in these allegations more transparency is that what ultimately needs to happen here and how do you do that uh, i'm not sure how you do it at this point um it does feel like it should happen i mean you know hockey canada kept feeding the media this line about um that they were doing what was best for the victims but there was never any accountability for any of the players who were accused. Um, they went on to make millions of dollars, many of them. So if that's the case, I think, I think Canadians are going to want to see more than just we're going to do better moving forward. I think there's going to have to be some kind of mechanism in place to, to have a reckoning with the past um, where, where something happens with these investigations beyond just um, – you know, we made a mistake and we're not going to do it again. McIntosh Ross is with us this half hour. He's an assistant professor of kinesiology at Western University in London, Ontario. We're talking about Hockey Canada's CEO resigning today. The board, too, is gone. The interim board chair, Andrea Skinner, quit over the weekend. All of this after a disastrous committee performance uh, last week. Uh, and more sponsors fleeing, provincial associations angry um politicians calling for resignations more revelations coming out in the media uh, one of the things i found interesting about all this uh, mcintosh is that it's playing out at a time when a lot of sporting governing bodies are under the microscope for behavior that would be considered to be maybe not in the best interest of the sport itself are we witnessing do you think a real sea change in the way that both athletes and the public view these governing bodies and what their role is I hope so. Um, it's uh, it's it's certainly a troubling time, um, you know, from boxing to bobsleigh, gymnastics, soccer, um, and on and on. There are uh, cases of uh, assault, accusations of assault, um, and abuse. Uh, right across the Canadian sports system. And, and it speaks to, I think, a sporting culture um, that has lost its way, a sporting culture that is so tied up in, in winning that it has lost sight of the, the core values we used to want to 
provide through sports, whether that's uh, cooperation, teamwork, leadership, things like that, um, where, you know, we call our, our funding programs Own the Podium. Um, yeah, I was going to point that out. It's, it's not enjoy yourself. It's, it's win, right? Yeah, it's, it's win at all costs. And if you're, if you're not the elite of the elite, Own the Podium is not going to give you money. So uh, the pressure on athletes is tremendous now. Um, and it's weird that we've got to this point because in the late 1980s, um, when Ben Johnson tested positive uh, after the Olympics, we had a, a big reckoning then with, with the Dubbin inquiry, and we, we concluded that we were too interested in winning and too obsessed with competition uh, here in Canada and that we needed to go a different direction. Well, it doesn't seem like that really happened, or if it did happen, it was fleeting, and we've lapsed back into where we were before, uh, and things seem to be far worse. Um, this isn't a steroid scandal. This is rampant abuse uh, across the whole sports system from team sports to individual sports um, men and women Uh, it's it's really shocking but it doesn't seem to be getting the same kind of outcry that uh, the steroid scandal did um, which which is just bizarre to me yeah, I mean, the steroid scandal was so focused on that one incident at the 88 Olympics and then on one person and, you know, the whole the controversy surrounding it, this idea that athletes were harming themselves to win, uh, but cheating, right? I think what, what yeah. has been different this time around is the cheating aspect isn't there. But it's in some ways, it's far more insidious because so many of these athletes are suffering in silence thinking, what's going on here? What's going on here? I haven't done anything wrong. I'm just trying to compete and win. Yeah, and, and and nobody's coming to help them. Um, it, it's weird. At, at one, you know, on the one hand, we put athletes uh, kind of up on a pedestal and we celebrate them. Um, they're our heroes and our idols. But then, when they really do need our help right now, um, it seems to be very slow coming. So, uh, Global Athlete, which is an advocacy group for for athletes, mm-hmm. has been yeah. calling for a third party investigation. Um, for months and months uh, and they, they've got no traction even with hundreds and hundreds of signatories um, to their letters and, and I don't understand what the holdup is um, you know there is a system coming uh, the, the new safe sports system and the uh, commissioner for sport integrity um, but that, that's still internal to Sport Canada that's funded through Sport Canada that's, that's not an independent third party investigation um, so I think there needs to be that and something more, something something more removed from sport. And we need to stop treating sport like it exists in a bubble away from society. These are these are people. Um, just because they're athletes doesn't mean that we sh- we shouldn't come and try to help them. Yeah, and perhaps today we've seen the beginnings of change at Hockey Canada. McIntosh Ross, thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Speaking of mistakes, did the federal government spend way too much money on the Arrive Can app? Now, we've learned in recent times um, that it's going to be about $54 million, including the last fiscal year and the current one, $54 million for the Arrive Can app. Um, now, we know what it does. It uh, was put in place so that travelers could download their information. Um, 
to comply with COVID-19 measures. I've used it before. It's relatively straightforward. It did cause quite a few problems for people using it the first time or people trying to use it with different uh with different devices, for instance. Uh, but basically, it allowed you to uh, share mandatory health information when you're coming to the country, including measures such as proof of vaccination and a quarantine plan. It has since been expanded to allow users to answer questions about customs and immigration. The app, by the way, is no longer mandatory of September as of September 30th. It continues to be a voluntary option. Um, but when this $54 million figure was released last year, a lot of people in the tech industry were like, $54 million? For that? Really? So they decided to put their knowledge and their keyboards to the test over this past long weekend and to show off their skills as well. The challenge was to clone the app, which isn't like building a new one, but still clone the app in a fraction of the time and show that it could have been done for a fraction of the cost. So Toronto-based digital innovation lab Tribal Scale, and they make apps too, uh, held a voluntary hackathon. They weren't the only company that did that. Another company in Canada did the same thing. Uh, but joining me now is Sheetal Jaitley, who's the CEO of Tribal Scale, with more on this. Uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. Hey, Ben. How are you today? I'm well. Well, this is really taken – I think people were really – this has been one of those things that people have suspected for a very long time and thought about for a long time, which is, does government spend efficiently on tech? Um, so, so tell me about, about just what you set out to try to do, because uh, you'd read the same articles we'd read about the cost, right? Yeah, so Ben, we do a, we do a stand-up every morning on Tribal Scale where we talk about what's happening in the news. And this actually came up um in, in our stand-up, and when this news story actually broke in our stand-up, we had some very smart people um, say, hey, you know, this this just seems outrageous for what the app is. And, you know, we one of, one of our team members said, hey, I bet you I can build that in two days. And one thing started spiraling into another where they said, hey, actually, why don't we go ahead and actually go and try to clone the app? Um, and that's how it started. Um, however, it, I do want to say, it, you know, cloning an app is much easier than building it from scratch. And that is, a, it's a much tougher thing to go and build it from scratch. So I completely sympathize with that, like the thought and strategy that goes into building a, you know, a, a five-star digital application. But I mean, we, by Saturday mid-afternoon, we were pretty much done. Um, and it's, it's, it's funny, it's, it's, it's not funny, I should say, it's, 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 it shows the magnitude of like the effort it actually takes to do these things if you do them right. Yeah. I mean, what was it about, I, I gather you certainly weren't alone, but what was it about that $54 million price tag? Now, over two fiscal years, and that includes the creation of it, the maintenance and so on. Uh, but what was it about that figure that struck you as being uh, outlandish, sort of, if that's the right word? <laughs> Um, ben, I think most of us have used the app, and it is—it's uh, more of an intake form. Um, and we build, you know, complex banking apps, healthcare apps, media apps um, that have many integrations and have much more complexity than ArriveCan had. And I have never seen an app come to anywhere close to the amount of $54 million. And that was, and, and so, and, you know, our tribe members have never seen um, an app that has, has gotten to like that size, especially for what this is. And so, you know, when they, when they said, hey, let's do it, I think, you know, our spirit and being in positivity is, hey, why don't we like do this and show the government that Canada 
is a place where the world comes to to build world world class digital applications. Not only tribal scale, but there's other companies in Canada that actually build a lot of the apps that sit on the first or second screen of your device. Right. And for our own government to not bring capital efficiency and productivity to this, let's go show them, hey, we got experts here in our own country, and if we can show them that, hey, this was not capital efficient or productive, then what can we do to make things move forward? So we started what we're calling the Canadian Technology Consortium. It's open to all tech leaders across Canada. I urge tech leaders across Canada who want to join to join and let's go and give our own government at every level of government across this country the right advice and information so that they can do things in a more capital efficient and productive way. Yeah, let's go back to the app because I find it fascinating. I think a lot of us don't understand apps other than how to use them, right? I mean, I, we don't understand why sure. something like the Arrive Can uh, would be less complex, say, than another uh, than another app that we use all the time. If you had to put, and I, I've heard you've mentioned this figure today already, if you had to put a price tag on what you think it would cost to build something like Arrive Can from beginning to end, what do you think it would be? Um, definitely less than a million dollars. Um, I think with strategy, execution, um, all security, and making sure things are buttoned down tight, and even revisions over the course of two years, I don't see it going over a million dollars. Now, that is also with, and I'm and I'm buffering that number, Ben. Right. Um, you know, working with government, it, there there may be other levels um, that I'm not accounting for, but even buffering that, I think you know. A uh, million dollars should have been it, which is way less than the magnitude of what we've seen happen here. Yeah, way less than 54. I mean, if you had to guess, without going into too, too much detail, but if you had to guess, there must be complexities of working with government that make it more expensive, just the the time, right? And, and the, the bureaucracy and the departments you have to deal with. And uh, But even that is not 154th. It's not 154th of the cost, I wouldn't imagine. 100%. And I think, hey, you know, if there, if, if there are bureaucracies and things that need to be done with government, then, you know, why don't, I, I, one of the things that our tribe members said was like, hey, we want to be the change that we see in society. So let's go and bring efficiency. Let's be productive in the way we do things. Let's not work. Let's work smart. Not, let's not work in antiquated ways. Let's work like lean startups. Let's make sure that we have the right regulatory compliance issues all solved. Let's build also ethical apps. Let's build things that people who are using them know what they're getting into. And I think there was a whole stigma around Arrive Camp when it first came out was, is it tracking you? Is it not tracking you? What's going on? I think we need a lot more transparency here, especially from our government. Yeah. Were you struck, I mean, just far prior to the price tag, were you struck at all? And there were a lot of complaints about this from privacy experts and so forth going uh, on in the early days of Arrive Canada, but how much secrecy there was around it, how little was known about who was, what was in it and where, you know, where the information was going. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we, 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 we here at Tribal Skill Build Ethical Apps, we want users to know what they're signing up for and, and, you know, work with clients to actually not only make them ethically right, but even, you know, with accessibility and all these other things that bring a lot of complexity you know, to making sure you build apps that are, that are made right for the users out there and letting them know what they're getting into. And I think that's super important. Did you find a way to make it? I mean, there was a lot of, I, I used it quite a bit. I didn't find it all that complicated, but you get used to it, right? Did you, as an app, how would you rate it period? Uh, just, just in terms of its um, functionality from the get go. Look, I think, I think the functionality um, works. I, 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 it, it did, it did its job now. Could it have been 
you know, would it have passed my standards? I, I'd say probably not. I like to have things be more intuitive and like, and, and UI UX can be done in a much better way. But hey, let's 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 even put that aside. It actually it actually did work for it. But also, it did have its bugs. And you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. My mother coming back from Cancun with me to Canada forgot her password. She couldn't reset her password within the app because if she left the app and went to her Gmail, then the app would put her back in an infinite loop and kept putting her in this infinite loop where we have to actually go and find the computer so she can get her reset password code and then go into the app and get these things done. And if we're talking about testing and like doing things the right way, these are edge cases you should be testing for your quality assurance program should have counted for these issues. Yeah, um, we were fine. Yeah. And it, thank God I was with my mother, otherwise she wouldn't know how to do it. What exactly? I mean, there was a bit of bravado on Friday when this came out. We're going to spend the, you know, enjoy your turkey. We're going to be busy doing this. Um, how did it go? How did it go over the first yeah, uh, 24, 48 hours? I'll tell you the first Friday, um, to, you know, on the Friday, I was like, hey, everyone, we, you know, I see that you were excited about this, but we do have client stuff that we need to get done. Um, ASAP and there was a couple of people saying, Hey, actually I'm not a client project today. I could like take the helms of like getting this initiative started, but it was, you know, I think when you get smart, passionate people together, you let them self-organize and like, it's your job as CEO to like put more fuel on their fire, um, to help them get things done, to help them get things done. Um, that's what we started doing. We like at, at Friday night, it was, it was great to see all the communication going back and forth to make these things happen to make these things happen and so we completely started like just building that night and like by saturday midday it was great to see the progress and what was done so you you managed by saturday midday so you're not even this is not even through the weekend we're not even hitting sunday football yet and you've already figured this out yeah i mean most of it was figured out you know our designers came in and like hey started doing the clones and the wireframes and like the right user flows and our engineers were like hey i'll grab a couple of stories that actually would do the coding on the, on the app. And like, everybody just kind of did it on their own. There's no pressure to go and, Hey, you have to do this um, over, over your Thanksgiving weekend. That's the last thing I would want our tribe doing um, wow. over the Thanksgiving weekend. But yeah. Hey, you know, when you got passionate people who want to actually go and like be the change that they want to see in society, you, you, you make it, they make it happen. And yeah, by, you know, I think for like Sunday night, they were just like, hey, we're going to put some polish on it and off we go. And Monday, um, I was actually stressing to everyone, like, hey, please take time to spend more time with family rather than uh, be working on this club. Yeah, I imagine. So what now? I mean, you, you've um, you've proven your point to to a certain extent. You managed to clone at least the Arrive Can app. Uh, you had a good look at how it worked and managed to uh, replicate a lot of it. What What next? Um, so here's what I think. Here's what I think is what next. I think um, we wanna we wanna get this consortium together. We're gonna have a meeting um, on Friday morning, at least to start figuring out how we could work as a tech community to at least create the right process and cadence for us to go interact with government. And then I urge anybody at at any level of government who is working on a digital problem and may not know if this is the most efficient way to solve it or not to solve it, come ask our community and we'll figure out the right cadence to do that. Um, and let us come back with insights on what can be done and how and how things can be done to be more capital efficient and productive. Um, we, we got, like, again, I, I got to say this, uh, Canada has some of the development, best development agencies in, in the world. And literally the world comes to us to build their, applications and let's go and bring that to our government and start making better user experiences for everybody across Canada in a more capital efficient way. 
have you ever had to deal with government? I mean, do you under, I mean, I, I, you know, obviously we know a lot about how government contracts work. It's a very elaborate process, right? It's a time-consuming process that involves, um, you know, submissions and 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 you know, approved contracts and so on. Uh, so oftentimes it's kind of the opposite of what we consider to be good tech innovation, which is quick-moving, streamlined, best idea wins. You know, it feels like like the government still, and this is not to do with this government only. This is government writ large um it's not large yeah it's not yeah. Like, again this is not a finger pointing mission this no. is like we, we see this happen everywhere right yeah some, for some reason the way governments are structured when it comes to putting out contracts and hiring people to do things for them doesn't seem to bode or, or jibe very well with the way you work best is that true or is that just a is that just an impression people might have from the outside Look, I think I can say the same thing for about some of the largest corporations in Canada where they have these large committees and then things go through a very slow process. But, hey, they're all figuring it out, too. So why can't our government figure it out? I think just saying, hey, this is the way it's always been done is not the right solution for the future. And we want to make sure that we come with the right recommendations to bring the right solutions for government in the future. Yeah. So uh, as a final word to you, then, what what have we learned? This all sort of started quite quickly. I know it came up as an idea sort of last week, and then all of a sudden it was going to be done. Both you and another organization did the same thing over the week. Laser, actually. I want to call them out. Yes, please. The team at Laser is amazing. Zane is an incredible CEO, and he has a very passionate team there that actually worked and got this done as well. So I want to give them the right shout out that they deserve. Yeah. So, so a last word. What did we learn then in the last? Because it's only been about five or six days that this whole thing came together for you, right? So, what did we what did we learn? Do you think? I'll tell you what I learned. I learned I'm one of the oldest guys in our organization, and our future is in good hands. As these young, enthusiastic, passionate, smart, um, new, younger generation into the workforce is going to come and do things like this to make us better. I think I've learned that. Hey our future is going to be put into good hands. Yeah. And and their assessment of uh, and their assessment of the Arrive Can app, the ones who sort of helped cl- to clone it, what did they think of the, of it to begin with and what do they think of the, what they did and achieved over over the past few days? I think they had a hypothesis that hey, this is not too hard to do and they came and proved that. That was one of the first things that uh, they did. They were they were they were super ecstatic that hey, we what we set out to what we said what we, we were gonna go set out to do, we actually went and accomplished. And um, you know, I think everybody, all of them have a little bit of a swagger in their step today saying, Hey, we are gonna be the change and we are forcing the change that we wanna see that we wanna see in our government. And I and I hope yeah. that we could come with a positive message to actually go and be helpful to make that happen. Less than a million, eh, you know, less than a million. You know, you know, you know, Ben, I, I got clients that do spend more than a million, but they got their, their, their apps are far, far more complex than arrived there. Uh, well, again, Sheetal Jaitley, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations to your team, by the way. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks for having me on. 